let me give you a quick ooh, uh, let me give you a quick update on uh, Lake. We've been getting most of the building done. If you've ever been there, the basement's almost all completed. The uh, the kitchen's still getting worked on right now. Then the basement will be done. The main floor uh, is almost entirely done. Just a few bathrooms are left, and we actually have kind of like a larger gathering space. And I've really wanted um, to just gather for prayer. And so for the past almost two months. We have just a small group of us. We meet kind of late because we're trying to get a prayer service to work really well. And so we've been working through this uh, schedule of how to have a really cool one-hour prayer service. And it's just been so much fun getting to pray and get to be in this building that's one day going to be a church filled with people who are proclaiming and worshiping God. And it's so, so exciting to me. You know, speaking about prayer, have you ever noticed that our prayer lives tend to reflect our current circumstances? You know, uh, for example, whenever I was engaged to Marianne, as a, you'll see a picture back there, um, the way I prayed was different. Um, whenever I became a dad and we first had our kids, uh, my prayer life was also a little bit different. Or uh, the time I jumped out of a plane and went skydiving, uh, prayer life was also a little bit different as well. Yeah, that's some of those ones, and that last one's a, is, a, is a great one. It's a little dark. I think I did all the prayers all the way down. It was great. But often when we pray, it can be a response to a specific moment or a time or an event that we find ourselves in the middle of. So this week, our family decided to get a dog. Actually, I decided to get a dog. Uh, I've been going to that place, Pet Paradise, uh, way too much. <laughs> Whatever they say about temptation, you know, flee from it. Don't pet it. Don't go once a week. Otherwise... You'll take it home, name it Charlie, and uh, not sleep for the past couple days. <laughs> but having a dog has really influenced my prayer life the past couple days. And these next two weeks that I get to be here with y'all, uh, we're going to look at a very specific event that deeply shaped Jesus' prayer life. Throughout most of his life, when he was asked to perform miracles or do some specific things, he would tell people, my time has not yet come. But in this prayer, Jesus begins by saying, Father, the hour has come. That time has come. You see, this took place the night of the Last Supper, and Judas had already left to betray Jesus. And soon, Jesus would be arrested, tried, and crucified. His time had come. And what he prayed for in the moments before give us a lot to think about. These next two weeks, we're going to meet Jesus in the middle of of one of the hardest things he would ever have to do. And what I love about this passage is just the same as when you spend time in prayer with someone, you kind of get a glimpse of their heart and how privileged are we thousands of years later to get to see and hear a bit of our Savior's heart as he prays. So if you'll turn with me to John chapter 17. This morning we're going to look at the first five verses of what's often commonly referred to as the high priestly prayer or the prayer of consecration. John chapter 17, we're going to start in verse 1, and I should have the words up behind me in a moment as well. So John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this 
is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You know, I've read this prayer, and it goes on longer. We'll get more next week as well. And I love it. It's really impactful, but it's always been a little bit of a challenge for me. There's a lot of depth in here. It's a very packed and dense prayer that Jesus prays. And so I'm really excited for the opportunity to, to be here with y'all and to have been able to study this and get to preach God's word. It's going to be really fun. So our first point this morning is simply, comes right out of verse 1. Jesus insists on increasing God's glory. He wants to see the glory of God increase more, right? We observe that the first of two requests, Jesus makes two requests for himself. The first one is he asks that God would glorify him in order for Jesus to glorify God. He says, glorify me so that I can glorify you, God. See, this is a relatively simple statement, but it does invite us to go a bit deeper. So Jesus obviously cares for the glory of God, and we can see he also cares for it to increase. That's the nature of Jesus' first prayer request, the glory of God and more of it. But, just, but because Jesus first asks that he be glorified, the scripture is teaching us that Jesus' glorification can result in God being more glorified. There's like an equation. Jesus' glory goes up, God's glory also goes up. Jesus knew his time had come and he would soon be delivered to men to torture and to kill him. The hardest thing he would have to endure during his life was right there waiting for him just a few hours away and he knew it. He prayed that God would make Jesus worthy of praise, honor, and majesty in the midst of the most shameful and humiliating death possible. And we know that God answered Jesus' prayer because of how we look at the cross today. We don't shrink back in shame and disgust. We're not embarrassed to tell people about our God who was nailed to a tree and died for us. We boast about it. We brag about it. We put our hope and trust in this reality that our Lord died for our sins. In fact, he is glorified in death. And it leads us to see the intensity of God's love for us. Through Jesus' obedience to God, we glorify God even more. Because of what Jesus did, we're even more impressed, even more worshipful of our God. I mean, what other God loved his people so much that he would be willing to die for them? Through Jesus' obedience, God's glory increases. We boast in the cross because we know the work that Jesus completed. And we glorify his name for it. But what could this mean for us today? A simple truth. We must seek to glorify God in our choices. Seek to glorify God in all your choices. Be concerned with your next step. Be concerned with your next investment, your next action, and say things like, will this bring glory to God? One of the quickest and easiest ways to fight sin in your life is when Satan's telling you what to do over here, that temptation's coming in and saying, hey, try this. You simply ask, will this bring glory 
to God? Will lying on this document bring glory to God? Will it make people think higher of God? Will they worship him because of my actions? We seek to glorify God in our choices. You see, Jesus asked God to help him accomplish an incredible task. I love Jesus' prayer because it's so easy for us to get in the routine of prayer. I have two little girls, and I pray for them to be safe at school, to learn about Jesus. I pray for my wife. I pray for my family. All these different things, usually to make sure that life is good and comfortable for us. Jesus prays for the glory of God to increase and that God would use him to do it. Are we daring enough? Are we bold enough to say, God, why don't you go ahead and change the world and use me to do it? Or are we holding on to something too much? Our, our comfort, our, sa- our safety, our security. Are we willing to say, God, increase my renown that I can have a bigger platform of influence to increase your glory? Jesus increased the glory of God through self-sacrificial action. One of the times that I embarked and felt challenged by this truth was when I was a college student at Texas Tech. It was my senior year, and I was trying to practice all these different Christian things I was learning about. One of them was glorifying God and letting him use you for his, for his will. And I was like, all right, I'm trying to figure out these things. I'm going to practice with a, I just, it was a fall semester. I had this class called media planning or media buying. It's just an advertising thing. Anyway, I was like, all right, God, here's what I'm going to do. As soon as I walk in the door to this class, anything you want me to do, the answer is yes. You don't have to write it. If I just feel like it's something you want me to do, I'm, I'm going to be prayed up. As soon as I'm walking to class, I'm praying the whole time. I'm praying the whole time I leave class. I'm, I'm focused. I'm hearing. I'm listening to God. Anything I feel like you want me to do, I'm going to do it. No questions asked. Y'all, this was the craziest class I've ever had in any semester because of the things that God did through that class. I don't have time to share all the stories. I want to share at least two um, the first, the first day we had to write, um, I don't, we're in college, and he has like the about me paper. He's like, tell us about yourself. I was like, oh my gosh. And one of the last questions was, um, what's something that you value in life that is going to help you with your future career? And I had just kind of affirmed or accepted my call to ministry in church a couple Sundays ago. And as I'm getting to everything, I get that question. I feel like God's like, give your testimony and tell me you want to be a pastor. And I was like... Okay, here we go. That wasn't too bad. So I wrote the whole paragraph on why I love Jesus and how he's called me to be a pastor and how I want to be used for ministry, etc. Well, to my surprise, as he collects all of them, he takes out the first one and says, Jared, blah, 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 please stand up. And he makes him read it. And I was like, oh, man. He does this like five more students. He's going, he's just pulling them out. And I remember standing up in class reading about this. And I was like, God, I'm not sure about this. Because <laughs> like, I don't know, there's like cool people in my class and stuff. And even though I'm a Christian, I'm still kind of anxious about what people think of me. And y'all, he never read my paper. And I was kind of mad. I was like, well, hold up. What's going on? So that was the start of things. But then here's the really crazy thing. This professor gave everyone this assignment. He said he's been doing this for years. It's a really tough assignment. You have to go online to this software and you have to get, I don't know, so many views on your advertisement with a limited amount of money. What nobody knew was the goal of this assignment was to not actually complete the assignment, but was, was to teach you as a student that there are limits in advertising and you can't always have the budget to accomplish the goals. Basically, it was, it was a trick. If you've ever seen Star Trek, it's called the Kobayashi Maru. It's like an unpassable test. You, you're never supposed to be able to pass it. You would always fail no matter what you did. 
I didn't know that. And um, <laughs> my God doesn't know failure either. So here I am sitting on my computer just freaking out, thinking I'm going to fail this test. And I'm like, all right, God, help me out. What do I need to do? And I just started getting some ideas. I was like, well, let me plug in these numbers. I'm like, God, what do you think about, about this? And I was like, I, I, this makes sense. It's weird. And so I put all my money in radio advertising at this weird time of the day. And the software computed it, and I hit the number. hit the right number of impressions. I'm like, sweet, I'm going to pass. Well, I bring it to class, pass it in. Two weeks later, teacher goes, all right, so something has happened in this class that has never happened before in 12 years of teaching. He tells everyone that everyone failed because it's a trick, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, what do you mean everybody failed? And I was like, I got it right. He's like, one person actually did this right, which I didn't think was even possible. Scott Godinez, can you stand up and tell the class how you did this? And God's like, tell him you prayed. Tell him you prayed. <laughs> so I was like, well, I was praying. <laughs> Man, it was a crazy class. Seek to glorify God in all your choices. He will use you for incredible things. Even more crazier things happened that semester, but I want to keep going. But the point is, we need to say yes to hard things. We need to say yes to difficult things. Jesus said yes to crucifixion. Well, that's a little dramatic. But our yes to the difficult things might be something like a career change. Maybe we need to make a different lifestyle change. Maybe there's something in our life we need to go after that we've been afraid to say yes to and pursue. Maybe we've been holding on to a possession that God wants us to let go. Maybe it's a hurt. Or maybe it's something as simple as just our integrity. Have we been deceitful somewhere that we need to discontinue? Seek to say yes to the hard things. You see, our obedience to God glorifies God because your trust and your reliance on him reveals his worth and goodness. When you hope in God through your obedience to him, you're telling the world that your faith is real. This increases God's glory. And because we love God, check this part out, because we love God, the more glory he has, so the more revealed worth and majesty, the better for us. Because we have even more to love him for. You know, I said this thing to a friend of mine on the day of his wedding that kind of caught him off guard. I said to him, today is the least you will ever love your wife. And he must have misheard me because he got really offended thinking I accused him of not loving his bride. And then he began to really think about it. You see, today is the day you will least love your wife because all throughout your marriage, you will learn more and more about each other. More and more is revealed and you get the opportunity to love them even more than on that day. I've only been married for 10 years to my wife, Marianne, and I love her so much more today than I ever did on the day I first said I do. Which isn't to say I didn't love her, it's to say we've been through so much together. And I've gotten to, sorry, I didn't make the, um, I've gotten to see her beauty more and see her come through for me and see her make sacrifices and see her faithfulness. Now that's the same thing with God, okay? You see, the more his glory increases, the more of his majesty and reasons for praise increase. The greater your love and enjoyment in him can increase. We want to see the glory of God increase because it's more of us to enjoy about him. We have more reasons to enjoy him. Think about some of you who've gone through some difficult things already. And you know God intimately in a way that some of us, like myself, I've only been alive for 32 years. There's things I have yet to experience in my life. You know God in a deeper, intimate way 
and you've seen his glory in the darkest of times that some people have only read about. Calm seas have never made a strong sailor. Somehow the quote goes, man, if you've been through it with God, you know him so well. You know him good. Today, you can experience a greater joy by seeking to glorify God in your choices through your obedience and your reliance on him. And one of the greatest reasons for joy that we can know is to trust Jesus for our salvation. And so in these next two verses, Jesus declares his role in the work of our salvation. You see, Jesus is the bridge that makes salvation possible. That's our second point this morning. Jesus is the bridge that makes salvation possible. And so I want us to look at verses 2 and 3 again. Jesus says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In verses 2 and 3, Jesus is referencing the authority given to him by God to make salvation available for all people. And then he defines what eternal life really is. You see, eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus. And there's a really simple way to accomplish both. I want to share this passage with you all out of John 14. You'll see it on the screen. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He was talking to his disciples. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing the work. You see, as we get to know Jesus, we get to know God. Jesus is the only way to God and this is not exclusive in the way that some people might try to say it is. Especially my generation, our millennials and stuff, we love to say things like, well, that's narrow-minded. Or that's, that's so, like, worse words. They say, oh, that's bigoted. Or that's, that's old-fashioned way of thinking, that Jesus is the only way. How arrogant can you be? I'm like, well, <laughs> you see, I can actually think of nothing more inclusive than for, sal- for salvation than a God who comes to earth, does all the work, to make salvation possible. You ain't got to do a thing. He did it all. I, I can imagine, would it be better if Jesus just gave us this little like dot on a map and said, go however you want, however you want, get there. You see, if it was a map we had to follow, half the men would never find it. Probably wouldn't stop for directions either. Some percentage of the women might show up about 10 minutes late. But what if there were stairs and you needed a ramp? Or what if the way was cold and you didn't have a jacket? Now, I can assure you, when Jesus says he is the only way, there is no alternative for salvation that I could ever desire to trust more than Jesus for my eternal salvation. He did the work. He is the way. This is a very inclusive thing. He did it. (laughs) We come to him through faith. 
So for, day, so for us today, this means that we must exclusively depend on our relationship with Jesus for salvation. Don't turn to the left or turn to the right and invest in anything other than the quality and the intimacy of your relationship with Jesus. They, and him and him alone is how you can find and know God and have salvation. There's no 12-step plan. There's nothing you can buy, no clothes you can wear. You see, we have to be careful, friends, not to fall into the trap of empty devotion and spiritual duty. Many Christians could spend their whole lives inside a church, or many Christians who never dare to actually get uncomfortable or make Jesus their number one priority are in for a rude surprise. Jesus tells us this in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name or cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now we're aware that Jesus knows like everything, right? So he's not saying, I didn't know about you saying we were never in relationship. Jesus is not impressed with empty religiosity. All of the legalistic pomp and circumstance that we use to prove our devotion, all of the little rules we follow and things we make and say, oh, this is tradition that is just as important as Jesus. No, it's not. Jesus alone is as important as Jesus. This is the mistake that the Pharisees made for all of their dedication to God and all their rules and their works, they never truly saw him. That's why I like to call them Pharaoh blinds. Because uh, they didn't Pharisee him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. It's a good one. I'll just stick to preaching. Instead, we must actively exercise our spiritual muscle to the fullest to experience all the blessings that come with knowing Jesus and inviting him to authentically know us. How are you getting to know God this week? You're here at church, so that's a great start. Is anyone praying to him this week? Is anyone trusting God with something challenging or risky? Anyone seeking to follow Jesus' teachings this week? You see, these are just a few of the simple ways we can get to know him every day. These are just some of the good works which God prepared for us to do. Any of y'all volunteered with the VBS this summer here at Aberdeen? A couple of people, yeah, yeah. So maybe you'll remember this verse out of Ephesians. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. God has designed us and called us to do these good works out of the overflow of our love for him. I love my wife, so I give her presents. It's an expression of how I care for her. We have many works God is calling us to, and Jesus sets the standard for how we should approach those works. Our third point this morning, and moving on to the next verse, Jesus completed every work which God sent him to do. Full completion, Jesus did it all, 100%. In the words of our current Gen Z 
youth, Jesus don't miss. He's perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. Everything he did was 100% to completion. God sent him to earth for a specific purpose, for specific works, and Jesus completed every single one of them. You know, it can be easy for us to question, why was Jesus' ministry only a few years? We must trust that his work was complete. There was nothing left that God needed him to do on earth. And while you and I know I have questions for why Jesus did what he did and didn't do some things he didn't do when he was on earth, John reminds us this, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. You see, Jesus was completely reliant on God for his every action. He only did what the Father did, and he completed it. This is a great encouragement for the believer, because we lack nothing in Jesus. We don't have to worry whether or not Jesus missed the spot. He finished the work. This is further supported when Jesus goes to the cross and proclaims, it is finished. I've done everything that needed to be done. Salvation is possible. The veil in the temple was torn from the top to bottom. Everyone can come to God. Jesus proclaimed it's the year of God's favor. All can come, to, to, all can come for salvation. For us today, we see that in our pursuit of Christ-likeness, to be like Jesus, we too must be prepared to complete the work God has given to each of us. This implies that there must be some other works that God has not given to us. So we need to learn to say no. Jesus didn't do everything possible. There were probably more things he didn't do than things that he did do. This is the reality of any great success. And this is an easy mistake to make. We can invest too much in the busyness of life and all the little things that we feel like need to get done. But the reality is, there are some things that must be done first. And others we can complete as secondary or even tertiary, second and third things. In our house, we have one of those little uh, Roomba vacuums, a little robot vacuum that goes around and cleans everything. My wife named it Martha, which is hilarious. <laughs> Because Martha made the same exact mistake, right? Let me share the story with y'all briefly. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Martha. The Lord answered, You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. We must not let the tyranny of the urgent control your life. You have to learn to say no to good things so you can say yes to God's things. See, I don't think Martha was wrong for cleaning the house. I just think she should have spent time with Jesus first. We need to set our priorities in order. When you make Jesus the number one thing, when you elevate him, you are glorifying him. You're saying he is worth more than whatever else I have to do today. People spend 
their entire lives doing all sorts of things that keep them busy or that they think are important to do's. But imagine if at the end of your life, friends, family, everyone's gathered around there, maybe at this church, and from right here, they read and someone gives testimony to your life and they say that he glorified God on earth. She accomplished all that God gave her to do. What a testimony. You left nothing unfinished. Can you imagine that? Everything God asked you to do, completed. Maybe you didn't get to go skydiving or ride a bull or whatever cool, fun thing that the world tells us. You've got to experience this. Glorify Jesus with your actions. But there's something even more beautiful than all of these great insights we gain from Jesus' prayer. You see, at the close of Jesus praying for himself, we, would, we see his second of two prayer requests. He prays that God would restore his glory and position to what he once had when he was in heaven before he planned to come to the world. So I have our, our fourth point, our last point this morning, but I, I kind of like how I worded it, so if you're copying notes or just memorizing, I don't know, try to change it a little bit. Jesus exchanged the glory of heaven, cross out four, Jesus exchanged the glory of heaven to make your salvation and then add possible. He exchanged the glory of heaven to make your salvation possible. You see, in this closing verse, in verse five, Jesus asked God for one more thing. He asked that God would glorify him with the glory he once had. Jesus is desiring a return to the full glory and power that he submitted, he laid aside while he was on earth. Now, I need to be careful how I communicate this next thing, and you need to be careful how you listen, or else you might think I'm preaching about something very untrue. We must understand there is a divine nature to Jesus and a human nature to Jesus. When he was on earth, both exist at one time. He's 100% human and 100% God 100% of the time. It's known as the hypostatic union. And how this is possible is a mystery that goes beyond our human understanding. What Jesus is praying for is a return to his divine glory, something that existed before the world existed. When Jesus comes to earth, he takes on a human nature, and he must release an element of his divine nature in order to interact with us. You see, the fullness of his glory and majesty would be beyond human comprehension. Even God said to Moses, no man can look at my face and live. Paul caught a glimpse of Jesus' glory and was blind for three days. Let me repeat myself. Jesus is still 100% God. But in his divine nature, he lays down a certain element of that nature temporarily in order to commune with us. Let me show you this in Scripture. In Philippians, you'll see the verse behind me. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So again, even though he uses the word empty himself, he's not saying that he loses his divine nature. We don't want to make that heresy. That's a, that's a wrong way of understanding Jesus. He sets aside an element, an aspect of his divine nature, but it does not diminish the fact that he is fully 
God. Another verse, 2 Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took on our sin. He's the perfect, holy son of God and he became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. He's starting to catch how powerful, how beautiful this is that what Jesus has done. I love this quote that I read from another pastor who was talking about what Jesus did here. He says, Jesus moved from such a height to such shameful degradation on our behalf. And that's the mindset we're supposed to have as we serve others. Pastor John Piper. You see, this is the gospel. Jesus, in perfect glory, filled with the fullness of God, lays aside his honor, his prestige, and parts of his divine nature in order to come to earth and rescue you. This is the good news of the gospel, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me read this out of 1 John. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. In Jesus' final prayer request, he reveals to us more of the heart of the gospel through his example. We get to love people like Jesus when we are willing to surrender and sacrifice for the sake of others, just like Jesus did. Now, this is a high calling, my friends, because of what it requires from us. But is anyone tired or bored of just living life normally? I mean, are you just tired of people expecting just the bare minimum from you? This week, remember what Jesus has done for you and be challenged to do the same for others. If the love of God is in you, there is no other option. Church, people will know that we are the disciples of Jesus by our love for others. So let's, let's go out and increase the glory of God by saying yes to the hard things. And trust me, you will see how much more there is to love about God through his glory revealed. John once said, he must increase, I must decrease. Who do you know who needs to hear this message? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Not just this prayer from Jesus, but the whole fullness of the gospel in your Bible. We have examples and lessons everywhere that teach us and show us and encourage us what to do. Lord, by your strength, help us to follow through. Holy Spirit, reveal to us right now anything in our hearts that we have elevated to the position of Jesus. Convict us to repent of it right now so that we can turn to you, God, and seek your glory. Like Jesus, help us to say yes to hard things that we may be glorified in order that we can use that to glorify you. God, already there are people in our lives, family members, friends, grandkids, relatives, who look to us and see us with respect and influence. Lord, let us not waste it. Let us tell them about this good news, about this Jesus who died for them, 
who gave up heaven to come to earth because he is that good. Show us your glory, Father. Show us your glory and invite us to love you deeper than we ever thought possible. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.